Well, this morning, um, uh, we're looking at Joshua 7. And I don't know if it's a passage that many of you have uh, read or been familiar with, whether you've grown up in the church or not. Uh, it's one of those passages that um, I don't think it's a lot of press in uh, Christian circles. Uh, and probably for good reason. Probably because it's kind of painful and it, it begs some really hard questions of God's character, um, of how He relates to us. Um, and, uh, and so we'll talk about those things. But as I introduce the passage this morning before we read it, and I think John actually spoke to me before the service and said this looks like a book in the scripture reading. It kind of does. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of verses. I'm going to read through this uh, as quickly as I can. Uh, but we're not going to like go verse by verse. We're just going to read through it. We're going to pray. And then we're going to um, ask God to help us, to, uh, help us apply it to our lives. So uh, with that in mind, let me read God's Word. Uh, this is uh, Joshua chapter 7. So you have it printed out. But if you have your Bible here with you, um, I always like having my Bible with me, even if it's printed out, uh, simply because you can look at other, other verses or something kind of piques your interest, like what happened before and after. It's always a good place to, to go. But this is Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. It's kind of a summary verse. Moving on in verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. And in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has, tra- he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys, donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are some hard things in this uh, chapter to wrestle through. Lord, would you grant us faith that we might have eyes to see uh, the things you want us to see and to understand more clearly who you are and who we are in light of who you are, that we might repent and turn to you and uh, that we might live as your people here this morning. You know, I pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I mentioned this, and I mean it. Um, I'm at Furman uh, doing REF ministry. Uh, I'm a comrade of David Fisk, and I love to get to do what I do. And I'm very new there, and one of the things I'm learning about being at Furman and being around college students again, because that's really our heart for Meredith and me. We loved our college experience at Auburn. That's where I came to faith when I was a freshman at age 19, and and where we both grew tremendously in our faith. And I did a two-year internship at the University of South Carolina in Columbia with college ministry. And, uh, and so we want to be with college students for a long, long time. One of the things I'm learning now that I'm 31 is that, one, I can't pass off for a college student anymore, and it's ugly when I try. Uh, and two, to preach a decent sermon, which I think I'm getting close, getting close, I'm not there, is to acknowledge the fact that it has to have application, application, application. And so as I think about it this morning, I think about what are we going to talk about from Joshua 7, because honestly, there's a lot of stuff in here that might be confusing and might trip us up. Um, I think one of the things we have to acknowledge, and I think God gives us the freedom to do this in our relationship with Him to acknowledge what's there. Certainly with us, He acknowledges what's there and He doesn't pretend. He doesn't let us pretend. Um, he pursues us and He uh, causes us to repent. So we're going to do it this morning where we're going to acknowledge the obvious uh, elephant in the room, and that is, is God bipolar? <laughs> is there an Old Testament God who is really, really mean? Kind of like if you grew up with a father who, was, who, was, who had some real anger issues, maybe you have an older sibling... And then when you grow up and the older sibling has the kid first and all of a sudden the mean dad turns into the super nice grandpa. And you kind of wonder, is this the Old Testament God or the New Testament God, right? Because the Old Testament God seems really mean and like you can't really know where you stand with him. The New Testament God seems like Santa Claus God, just climbing his lap. Jesus loves you, this I know, you know, for the Bible tells me so. Is, is that what's going on here? And what I want to tell you is definitively, no, that's not going on. And, and that's why I prayed for us to have the eyes of faith to see this because... Um, on the surface, it can be very troubling. I just want to acknowledge that. But here's what I want to show you. Uh, number one, um, the, the principle I want to bring out here is that we will always, always, always underestimate our own sin, or excuse me, overestimate, overestimate our righteousness and underestimate our own sin. We will always underestimate God's holiness. That's our trajectory. That's our default mode. Is simply because that's what, that's what we'll do. We just... We just come from a place, you know, if, if God is holy and we are not, and He is making us holy, He has to save us, and then He's 
uh, through a process called sanctification. He has to make us holy throughout a lifetime. And even then, we will always struggle with, with, with sin, with the, the temptation of sin. I mean, so he's, he's very patient with us, right? Now, if this is who God is, right, and we will always underestimate His holiness and overestimate our own righteousness in our own eyes, then I think that it maybe will help us a little bit to wrestle with this and say, what's the big deal? Why is God seemingly overreacting? And why is it so harsh? Because they stone Him, they burn Him, and then they stone Him again, you know? And these are people, after all. These are human beings made in His image. So what is going on? The second thing I want to say to you is this. If you hadn't read before Joshua, because this is what we're doing in a large group at RUF, going through the book of Joshua, and... Um, so we've done this a few weeks ago, but if, if you are not familiar, I want you to go to Joshua 6 if you have your Bible or, or if you have your smartphone and you have an app on there with the, the Bible um, app. Uh, go to Joshua 6. This is the fall of Jericho, right? This is a really, really uh, sort of big story when you're growing up. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this a lot uh, about Jericho. And, and if not, then you're probably troubled by this too. But uh, if you're troubled, then we'll, we'll talk to that outside of uh, the service for today at least. So Joshua 6, the fall of Jericho, what happens, right? They march around the city for six days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times and they give a great shout and the Lord brings the walls tumbling down. And they are commanded to put to the sword every living thing. So one hand, we might be tempted to say, well, this God is just mean all the way around. But I think what we ought to say, and by God's grace, what we are able to say in faith is that God is consistently who He is from beginning to end. Not even beginning, because He's you know outside of space and time. But like from, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole picture, He is God all the way, and He never breaks character. He is perfectly just, and He is also merciful as well. So what I want you to see is that He's actually very just in doing this, because what He had called the Israelites to do in going to the Promised Land was actually not only to inherit the blessing that he had promised to Abram, and who became Abraham, you know, the father of the people, but he also promised this land. And part of that was that they would be instruments or vehicles of judgment for these people. And this has been building for over 400 years. This has been something that was in the making. And that even then, I think very strongly, the six days thing, you know, because the, the people in Jericho were already afraid of the Israelites and what they would do. I don't think it's because they were trying to punk them out and make them scared. And the Lord made it very clear, this is not about you, this is about me, and this is between me and the Jericho people. Okay, This is, this is between me and them. I just want you to see this. You're going to be a part of this. I think the six days, personally, part of it is to give them six more days. After 430 years of this thing building up, the Lord is gracious and kind. His kindness leads to repentance. He's saying six more days. To make it very clear, I'm giving you 144 hours here. You have six days for you to see this is about to go down. Will you repent? And they don't. Everybody except for Rahab and her family who are promised to be saved. And Rahab joins the people of God. So even then we see that God is, is who He is fundamentally. If He's about blessing from the very beginning, not even Abraham, but with Adam and Eve being a blessing to the entire world and the entire human race populating and spreading on the earth being a blessing, that they would actually do that. I mean, if that's His MO and always has been, we even see that with Rahab. In the end of Joshua 6, how He would include her in the people of God. Okay, so... This is God being who He is, even if we're troubled by it. This is, I, would, I would maintain very strongly, this is God being Him, and He is right to do so. So what am I saying? God is very just, as well as gracious. He's just because what He commanded Israelites to do to someone else, He holds them to the same standard, right? If you grew up in a household where you have parents that play favorites, you know, 
and we do this way more than we want to admit. My kids are not old enough yet to where I see it more clearly, but I'm sure in the coming years, I'm going to have some blind spots where I'm going to realize, am I being fair to my kids? Am I, am I having the same standard for my five-year-old, my three-year-old, and my one-year-old? As they get older, all three girls, um, am I being fair? Am I being consistent in what I say with them and, and the way we do, we do, do life? Uh, now, God is very fair because when the Israelites sin, same thing. You took the things devoted for destruction, you become devoted to destruction. And that's, that's your own death sentence. You created your own death sentence. So I would maintain to you this morning, even a very troubling passage, potentially very troubling, that God is extremely just as well as gracious, even in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, that God is very much uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can trust Him because He's good. Okay, now, that's the backstory. You just want to kind of mention that, not to get it out of the way, but just to say in, in the foreground that has to be there. We have to talk about it because we can't just ignore that, I don't think. But that's what's happening here in Joshua 7. So there's tremendous sin. But this morning, um, I'm not sure this is the title for the sermon. In my mind, I don't, I don't know if you're like me. I like to have titles for things. Even when I make a to-do list, to make a title in my Word document or an Evernote, like I just have, I'm just kind of a title guy, you know. In my mind, and I'll share with you this morning, the, the title for this, this message this morning, this sermon, is Sin Covered and Uncovered. And here's my main point. If you listen to nothing else, if you get nothing else out of this, this is what I want you to get. That we all have sin. All of us are sinners. So that's not the question. The question is, is not this morning, which one of you has sinned? Which one of you has sinned? But the question is, what are we doing with our sin? And how are we trying to deal with it and trying to remedy it and trying to atone for our sin? And here's what I want to say. There's a play on words in here in this chapter about hiding the, the hidden things. You know, Achan sins because he takes the things devoted for destruction that he was told not to take. He hides them in the earth. That's his way of dealing with his transgression and his sin, is to hide them. He covers them. But God, because he's so gracious and because he's so kind and patient, what he does with us is he uncovers our sin where we've hidden sin. And maybe sometimes we don't even know that we're in sin because uh, we have tremendous blind spots you know, uh, in our heart. We don't always know why we're doing what we're doing. right? So what God does graciously is he draws out that sin. He uncovers that sin so that he might cover it in his own way. The way that He covers our sin is to make atonement for it, to make a sacrifice. And we know through Christ, the movement that the story of Scripture is moving in, that Christ Himself will be the perfect sacrifice so that God can be both just and gracious. That's who He is. So now, once again, we try to cover our sins in our various ways. And that looks a lot different from person to person. We try to cover sins. But Jesus says... I want to cover them, but in a different way. Instead of hiding them, instead of running from, uh, running in our sin, sort of running away, I'm going to actually bring them out so that you might repent. Repent means to turn. You might turn to me and be forgiven and be healed. That's what he desires. So we have different ways of doing things with our sin. And so that's why I'm talking about sin being covered and uncovered today. I'm talking about sin in, in a couple of ways this morning. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through this passage and just kind of speak on it. Um, it'll be a, a little like a walk in the woods, maybe. Um, and so if you, if you like that, that's great. If you don't like that, then uh, just hang in there. But, uh, but anyway, a couple of things to pay attention to. How sin affects the relationship with God and how sin affects relationships with other people. Okay? So I'm going to move through, if you have your uh, handout or if you have your Bible here, 7, 1 through 26. All right, verse 1 to go back. The people of Israel broke faith and regarded the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, 
of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. Notice, but the people of Israel. How many people actually took the devoted things? One. So why is the people? Why are the people of Israel held responsible for the sin of one man? Right. It reminds you of what Scripture talks about in the person of Adam and the person of Christ. That through man, one sin came to the entire human race. In in one man, the God man, redemption might come through that one man. I don't know if you, when I was little, it used to freak me out because I, I grew up going to doing the BBS thing, the Sunday school thing. Every Wednesday night, I was there. My parents made me go. Most of the time, I was okay with it. Um, and one of the things I always kind of struggled with was, well, if I had that chance, like Adam had, I might not have sinned, right? Have you ever thought of that? Like, why, you know, why is this one guy running it for the rest of us? If you're in a fraternity or sorority, especially if you're in a fraternity, because this is where I'm coming from, I know pledgeship can look different from campus to campus. If you've ever been in a situation where in a fraternity you're pledging and there's one guy who makes one mistake and everybody pays for it, you know, it's, it's just very unfair. Like, he didn't do the one thing that we all had to do. We were all held to the same standard that he didn't do it, and now we've got to do whatever is, you know, university policy-wise, non-hazing. But we have to do it, and uh, and I don't like that. So we, there's something about it that we feel very unfair. It's very unfair. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. But here's what we need to understand about sin in relation to God, is that God, in the community of believers, we, we're more tied than we want to believe. And, the, and more tied together than the way we want to, to try to act. Because, to be, to be fair, in our Western culture, in our context, you know, we're not the center of the world. You know, we're, we're in a very specific place in a specific time. So it isn't all about us. To understand our Western culture is we have this huge push for individualism. And it's been building and building and building. I think it's coming to a breaking point, quite honestly. Uh, because, I mean, we, we, we crave community. We say we like social media. It makes us more social. But in the end, uh, I think we become more insecure and lonely in some ways because of it. And so we, we want, we, we're, we're sort of... Here's what I would say. That my generation, I'm 31, and I would say this about current college students that I have the privilege of ministering to at Furman that I love dearly, uh, kind of putting us in the same group here. My generation, their generation... Um, we want to be part of the herd, but we want to stand out in the herd. You know what I mean? Like, we don't want to be alone, but we want to be unique. Right? So I want to be with my group of friends. I want people to like me, but I want to be a little bit better than they are. Right? We want to be in a herd of elephants, but we want to be like the pink elephant in the herd of elephants. Like, he's an elephant. He's cool. We like him, but he's he's different. He's, like, he's, he's kind of cool, right? Now... That's where we are. And so I think a lot of times we have a hard time with doing community and even understanding what that means, and, uh, and, 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 and that's okay. Um, but to understand that when God sees His people, like when he, when he brings you to faith in Christ Jesus, when He, is a word in the Scripture called regenerates, when he, when he saves us, He gives us new hearts, it's not like we become free agents, right? Like um, mid-season NFL roster additions. We don't, we don't do that. We join a body of believers, a, a church with a capital C throughout all time and space and history uh, of people, and, and, we, and we become part of that church, the body of believers. So we're not free agents, free to act and do whatever we want. We have responsibilities to one another to live in community. I think we have a hard time with that for a lot of reasons. And, and, and so I'm not just saying, like, pound it on us, like, you know, like, Oh, we're terrible, terrible, terrible. What, I mean, it, you know, God has infinite patience for us, right? Uh, in Christ. But here's the thing. Um, you know, you and I, um, we like to do our own thing. We like to, we like to uh, get really upset when someone tells us, hey, that, that wasn't right. 
Now, I will say this, that you and I all have to grow in the area of having wisdom in the way we speak to people about their sin and being vulnerable and not just like, like, like this is community. Community isn't about separating ourselves from other people like we're better than you, right? Like the herd of elephants. I'm just a little bit better than you are. It's saying, I'm like you, me too, but that's wrong. Right? That's where it says throughout in Scripture, like the testimony is continuous that you know, when you call another one to task, be very careful, guard your own heart because that's usually the pride before the fall. But it doesn't say, hey, when somebody's doing something like, just, just don't worry about it. And another caveat I'll say too, it makes it difficult to do this and, and to love one another well through sin struggles is this. Um, when you and I um, are struggling with a sin and then we see someone else, we, we feel this feeling of like hypocrisy, like I can't call you out on that because I'm doing it myself. And here's what I want to say about that. You and I will always be hypocrites in that way. And the reason why is because in this life, even though we've been freed from the penalty of sin and through sanctification, sin, by God's grace, is becoming less appealing and we're dying to sin and living under righteousness. In this life, we will always have that temptation in front of us. And it won't be until we die, until uh, we're, Bible calls, glorified, and until there is no sin itself. Sin doesn't even exist. Death doesn't exist you and I will truly experience that victory, that, tr- that, that final victory that God has promised. In this life, we have victory over sin. But it's, it's not the same as what it will be one day. Okay? And so, understand when I say that we're all hypocrites. Understand that like, when we engage one another, we're all in the church sinners saved by grace. We have a new identity, we have a new MO, a new way of motivation and desire for doing things. But if I wait until I don't struggle with something, I'm going to be dead, literally. Right? So understand that that causes us to task for the way we speak to each other, the way we love each other, the way we're patient with each other, and we don't just swat away uh, people when they're doing something. Like, don't ever call someone out just because you're annoyed by them, right? That's one of my things I struggle with, is that, like, I have a hard time, like, with my kids. God bless them because they're my kids, right? And I already kind of feel sorry for them because they're my kids. Because they've got this guy as a dad, right? Um, but, uh, but anyway... You know, a lot of times I'm like, I just think it's my job with my kids to like, hey, stop, stop, stop. Like, just stop doing it. And yeah, there are things they shouldn't be doing. If I see my one-year-old like with a Vustop knife, hey, you know, taking it out of her hand, I'm not going to be like, hey, well, that's cool. Have you been watching YouTube clips of Samurai? Let's, let's play with that, you know. No, that's, that's weird. But, but, you know, there's things you have to step in. But as a parent, if you're a parent here today, you understand that temptation probably very well. That, that, that impulse we feel at times to, hey, just stop, 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 and just hammer each other. It's another reason we have a hard time doing community and calling each other to task to live as the people of God. But God in His grace and in His patience, um, He is calling us what we are to be, and He's making us into what we ought to be. And so that's what I want to say about this, about sin in the context of community. Now, sin in the way it affects our relationship with God, alright, so, so, if you're here today and you're thinking about a midterm you've just had or a midterm you will have, you're thinking about a job you're interviewing for, and maybe it's the third or fourth round of interviews, if you are looking at your retirement and thinking, mm, it doesn't seem like it's going to ever happen. Like, wherever you are today, understand this. Our biggest issue is not that thing. That is important to God. It's important to us. We don't want to like under, undermine that at all. And God isn't the God who, who says, you know what? I'm just sick and tired of you worrying about your studies. Just get over it already. He doesn't do that with us. 
He loves us. He embraces us with all of our sin and shame. He loves us where we are. He loves us not where we want to be or where we think God wants us to be or where we think we wish we were. He loves us where we are. Nonetheless, one of the things that you and I struggle with is we make the things that are going on like that's the, like the biggest thing. That'll make me happy when fill in the blank, right? So for us, we just moved to a house. We've moved three times in four months. And one thing I've learned about myself is that I don't do well with transition. <laughs> I don't. And maybe you feel the same way if you're a freshman or if you're senior. Like in college, you're just always in transition. You get to freshman year, sophomore year, you're busy, really busy. Junior year, you kind of hit your strides usually. Senior year, you're like checking out. By the time you get settled, it's like time to go, right? And maybe that's why so many people do a fifth, fifth year. I don't know. Just to you know, kind of milk it. And that makes sense. I, I wanted to do a fifth year, but I met my wife, and I was like, I think I'm going to do that instead. I'm going to I'm going to get married. Um, you know, don't want to be in school and be married. I just took my HR degree that I've never used and and matriculated. But to understand that life is about transition and that we do transitions differently. But for me, transition is very hard. And moving three times in four months. One of the things that God has helped me understand about my own heart, and which I haven't wanted to see often, but is still there as an issue, is when I go through a transition, I usually just feel stuck. I usually have a hard time moving and dealing with transition. And in transition, I'm moody. Like, if you've seen those commercials for Snickers, you know, uh, guys and, and girls acting way different than normally would, they just take a bite of the Snickers and they, and they completely change character. It's like Joe Pesci's an actor in one of them, and... He's acting like a you know a mobster guy, good fellows, and then he takes a bite of Snickers, and he's like, oh, just kind of normal guy playing football in the backyard, like kind of that. But I'm sort of like mostly hangry, even when I'm not hangry in transition. You know what I mean? I'm just not always pleasant to be around. And one of the things I lie to myself about is that you know when we move in, we finally get to this promised land of having a house because we moved from Augusta. Very grateful to be where we are in Greenville, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is, I hate moving. I hate transition. Go to from Augusta to uh, a townhome in downtown Greenville, and um, and we moved after a few months because it was just kind of a rest stop for us before we got to a house that we could find that we wanted to settle into. We found that near nearer to Furman's campus, but we moved three times in four months. And I remember, uh, and even this morning, I was talking to Mary Beth on the way here, and I'm like, well, what do we need to do next like, to get settled? It's good to like get settled and to get things in order. It's good to balance the budget. It's good to go through your region's checking. It's good to do those things. Don't get me wrong. But often the way we operate is like, when this happens, then I'll be okay. Right? When I get that job interview and I get my name called, it'll be fine. When I'm uh, a senior at Wofford or Converse or wherever, and I finally uh, get that paid internship I've been looking for, then I, then I can be, you know, fill in the blank. I can be a better brother or son or daughter or boyfriend or, you know, like that, that I'll have arrived when I get this, right? That's the way we often think. For me, it's when we get moved in, we finally move in our house, then I can truly rest. Here's the issue with God and, and, and us. Okay, Our biggest issue is not that thing, although that is important. Our biggest issue is, is our sin covered by God? What that means is, if we have experienced the blessings of salvation in Christ, that you and I have reason for inexplicable joy, no matter what the circumstances. Because the biggest thing in the world, the most prob- problematic thing, has been taken care of. That doesn't mean that other stuff is insignificant, but what it means 
is that everything that we go through and everything we experience is in light of that new identity. So that's the question. Is our sin covered or uncovered? That's what we need to know the most. Do we know Jesus? Are we resting in Him and receiving Him alone as He is offered in the Gospel? Do we trust in Jesus? Do we believe that He is good, that He can be trusted, that He is for us and not against us? Um, do we believe that? Um, moving on. Um, moving through Joshua 7 here. Okay, So basically, just to summarize, God gives Joshua um, the command to find the guy out. And Joshua obeys. But also Joshua complains, okay? So here's what it is. It's like Charlotte just up the road. Jericho is the big fortress city. Charlotte's taken. That seemed pretty easy. Moving down to Spartanburg, you know, a lot smaller than Charlotte, that's kind of like I. Okay? So Joshua, in his unbelief, his lack of faith, he says, we only need about 36 guys. It should be no problem. It's a smaller city. And what happens? They get routed, right? There is a lack of confidence. There is overconfidence. Whereas before the Israelites would have dealt with like a lack of faith and being like shriveling up in fear, this time they're overconfident in what in their own ability, and it really is about them and not about the Lord and what He's doing. So they go and they get routed, and He gets confused and He's complaining. He's like, you know, why did this happen? God's like, I love you, Joshua. Just shut your mouth though, because what you need to know is this: there's sin in the community, and 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 someone needs to find this out. I want you to find this out. And of course, God knows, but Joshua doesn't know at this point. So that's what I'm saying. Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I've commanded them. So here's Joshua saying, the issue is, why did we lose an eye? You know? Why? I mean, that, like, what are you going to do to us now? God's like, that's not really the issue. That's an issue. But the real issue is, there's someone who's transgressed my covenant and taken some of the devoted things. And he's now become devoted to destruction. Again, my point about it's really, the, the biggest thing is about, do we know Christ? Is our sin forgiven and atoned for, or are we still trying to deal with our own sin in our own way and trying to either ignore it, pretend that we aren't sinners, pretend that it's all relative righteousness because it's really not about God and us, it's about the person next to me. You know, she's, uh, look at her, the way she dresses, like, look at her, like, she's just not as smart, like, I feel better than her, and so I feel okay with that. And instead, we forget that we are responsible before God. Like, He, that's that's the main relationship. Yes, it's, it's this, it's in community, but, but the real issue is our sin is it covered, okay? Remember, that's, that's what we're talking about here. So verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So Joshua finds him out. It's, it's Achan who does this. The last thing I'll say here, uh, if you go to um, uh, uh, verse 22, this is Achan. This is a really good confession he gives. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in its tent with a silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons, daughters, oxen, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And they become like the Amorites. They become like the people they're supposed to drive out. Here's what we see about Achan. Uh, you wouldn't know this because this is not our culture, but I know this because I had some time to research it. What is a shekel, a bar of gold, and all this? Basically, this is a lifetime worth of savings. Achan, I'm sure, thought, okay, great, a promised land we're going to go to, but remember, I'm a little bit better than somebody else. I deserve this. Like, yeah, that's, that's God's law, 
but I don't really trust that he gives me all that I need. And so I'm going to help him out. I'm going to I'm going to steal some things. Yeah, I get it. I heard it. Like I heard it, but I don't really believe it. And so I'm going to take these things because I want to be in the in, in the in the in the new land. I want to be settled. I want to have the five bedroom house and everybody else has a three bedroom and they're like living in tighter quarters. Like I want to be able to have that. And uh, and just you know have have the gated community like I, I want that when we get in the promised land I don't want to have to work you know I want to be settled I'm, and in his mind he's I'm sure he's justifying taking care of my family providing an inheritance for them but once again sin is the biggest issue between God and us and if we have that atoned for through Christ that is the reason for everything that we have to be thankful for and that that's that's really the biggest issue and so he sort of forfeits his inheritance in the land of Canaan living in the people of God. For an, for an earthly, temporal, right now inheritance. And ultimately that brings destruction not only on him but on his whole family. Remember, he's going to provide for his family by doing this. But by sinning, God brings justice to it. He disciplines. And the entire family, instead of experiencing blessing, experiences God's punishment and his wrath. So where are you and I today struggling with areas where we feel like God is not really trustworthy? It's not that we think he's totally untrustworthy, but where do we think we need to help him out? Where do we think he's been unkind to us? Where, does, where do we think he's been unfair? Where do we think he's not moved as quickly as we thought he ought to? And where is he calling us in those areas to greater faith, to trust in him because on the basis of his goodness and his character? Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, uh, this uh, chapter this morning from your word. Thank you so much for loving us so deeply uh, and so perfectly in Christ. And thank you so much for the way that you take care of us. And forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we um, we sin against you. And thank you ultimately for Jesus, because that's the hope that we have. That's the hope of the gospel. That yes, though we have sinned, uh, though we are uh, polluted by sin, and though we have no hope outside of you, though you should be the one to turn us away and reject us and cast us off forever, you're the one. You're actually the one who rescues us, who initiates, who comes toward us, the very people who rejected you. And you paid the ultimate price to win us back to yourself. And so we trust in you and we trust that when you say it is forgiven, that it is over and you don't bring it up against uh, us again. And so that when Christ stands between us, we know that that is our greatest hope and our greatest joy. And that now we have peace with God the Father through Christ. We know that even then the Holy Spirit is now working in us to make us more like yourself. So this morning we thank you for all that you've given us and thank you for this church this morning. I pray you would be uh, with the Kendricks as they come home, I pray that you would give them safe travels. And uh, Lord, be, uh, be a, an ever-present help to them in their grief. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.